Hello, and welcome to this episode of Breathe Easy Podcast, today featuring the Clinical Problems Industry Working Group. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. My name is Dr. Sydney Montesi, and I'm an assistant professor in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine in Massachusetts General Hospital. And today I'm sitting down with our guests, Dr. Colin Reisner and Dr. Gary Anderson to discuss drug development. Dr. Reisner is a CEO and co-founder of DevPro Biopharma, which is focused on clinical research development and acceleration of new pharmaceuticals. He is an allergist and immunologist by training, having completed his fellowship at National Jewish. He has spent over 25 years in industry and was head of late respiratory, inflammation, and autoimmunity at AstraZeneca. He has played crucial roles in the development of many now FDA-approved respiratory-related therapies. Dr. Anderson is a professor at the University of Melbourne, where he is director of the Center for Lung Health Research. He is both an immunologist and pharmacologist and has made seminal contributions to our understanding of the mechanisms driving asthma. He has performed extensive translational pulmonary research and early phase clinical trials. He has also spent 10 years in industry working in drug development. Drs. Reisner and Anderson, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Let's start. Absolute pleasure, Sydney. Absolute pleasure to be here. Um, to start um, our discussion today, can I ask how did you become interested in drug development? So shall I kick off, Colin? Um, this is rather tragic, Sydney, but this is a boyhood dream for me. I knew about Paul Ehrlich from a book from a lovely aunt. And of course, Howard Florey is very famous in Australia for penicillin. And as a young lad, I just wanted to make medicines in Switzerland. I had this obsession to do it. I had a job after school with the local pharmacist to deliver prescriptions to the elderly. They drop them in the morning, you drop them in the afternoon. And I'd read the package inserts. And I remember being caught at school by the sportsmaster reading a glossy magazine in the corner. He snatched it from me. What's that? And it was current therapeutics. And I was reading about pharmacokinetics. So a tragic. Um, Gary, thanks for sharing that. Um, I'm maybe not quite as cerebral as Gary, but I am pretty good at um, you know, making things and being practical. And uh, one night during my internship, um, it was late in the evening, probably one in the morning, uh, there was a fire in one of the local apartment complexes and we must have had 15, 20 people come in for smoke inhalation. And you know, at your job as an intern, of course, you know, evaluate them and then fill the nebulizers because it was one in the morning and the 80s. So there was no ancillary staff. And so going around filling all the nebulizers and then my pager, yes, it was the 80s. So my pager uh, buzzed and there'd be a code up on the 12th floor and you'd run up and down the stairs and come back and you know, refill the nebs, et cetera. And was, you know, luckily no one died and everybody got out of this successfully. But it, uh, it, it struck me that um, we could build a continuous nebulizer. So I spoke to one of the pulmonologists the next day and I said, why don't we make a continuous nebulizer, especially for patients with acute severe asthma, we can give them a consistent dose over the entire hour or two hours or four hours or however long they are in, in the ER. And he said, yeah, it's a great idea, but um, there isn't one, so it has to be a technical challenge. So I said, actually, wait here, I'll be back in five. I grabbed an IV pump, I grabbed the tubing, I grabbed bag of saline, a needle, and a um, disposable nebulizer, and just plugged a hole through the uh, disposable nebulizer and, and ran that up through the IV pump. And um, it worked beautifully. Set that at 15 mLs per hour, and uh, we had this consistent uh, plume from the nebulizer. So, well, 
why don't we attach it to the IV pole and come back later in the day and, and see if it works. It still worked. There's no clogging. Came back the next day and it was still working. And he said, okay, now that you've got this, you need to design a study to test it in asthma to see whether it's as good as intermittent nebulizations. So we designed the study, learned what an IRB was, and um, uh, one thing that to another Matthew showed that it was comparable, and that uh, I think in large part is how I ended up at National Jewish, and I would say probably hundreds of clinical studies later still find it intriguing and love what I do. That's an amazing story. Um, can you talk us through what happens in the early drug development process and take us through what are the stages of drug development? Sure. It's a very long and complex process, so worth going through. These days, biotech, venture capital, big pharma are looking in the lung area for what are called transformative strategies. So we're no longer really interested in incremental improvements to long-acting beta agonists or antimuscarinics. We don't need to make those work any longer or any more safely. That's finished. We need drugs that really shift disease uh, and experience of disease. So the process would be there will be a theory of how disease happens from academia or in-house research, and that will be deconvoluted into its molecular components. And then there'll be some thought to how could we interfere with those pathways that are being identified. Most of the big houses have different technologies. Some small biotechs have one technology and they'll try and apply their technology to that particular target. If it's a small molecule, they'll start a screening campaign, look for leads, and then medicinal chemists will optimize those to improve their drug-like qualities test them in animals, do their kinetics, and predict the first in human trials, which are initially kinetic, looking for the uh, disposition of the drug in the body, some evidence of target engagement, and then the really critical phase two studies. That's where you start to look in people for evidence that the drug is modifying a disease process. And in fact, most drugs fail, not in their discovery or creation up to the point of being given to humans, that um, 70% succeed on target, but most fail in the phase two program where the theory doesn't match the actual disease. That's our big dilemma in respiratory in general. Yeah, and add some color to that, Gary. So from phase two, you know, the, the big thing, you really wanna make sure that you've designed the study well and that if the drug fails, the drug fails the study. It's not that the study has failed the drug. And it's really important to optimize your patient selection, ensure that you have the right patient population. Big thing, ensure you are well powered to detect the difference that you're looking for and whatever the signal is, and really assess it across the entire span of, of um, doses so that you can assure that you're getting an effect obviously at the high end and that you have evaluated the lower doses as well to identify a single optimum dose. And what Gary's described is really complex and mind, you know, absolutely mind boggling. For me from phase three is really where the rubber hits the road. And so you have to, it's expensive and it's time consuming. And if you do phase two well, you're able to identify a single dose and take that into phase three and just evaluate and confirm the safety and efficacy. Um, the problem that I'm seeing a lot seeing in drug development is a lot of times people short circuit phase two. And if it fails in phase two, then these are the lot of questions and there's no way it'll make it into phase three. And so, you know, Gary's correct. There's a huge failure in phase two. Um, many times uh, if, when you look at some of the designs or the attention to detail on patient selection, uh, it leaves me concerned that we may have 
evaluated the product in the wrong patient population. Yeah, and Colin, I'm sure you agree. One of the reasons we fail in phase two is that we don't have very good biomarkers or early indicators of drugs that might affect things like COPD progression or COPD exacerbations. There's a real leap of faith and people have to make decisions to move into very expensive. And we're talking a thousand million dollar trials on exacerbations on the strength of sometimes some very precarious phase two data, knowing their competitors may be behind them. It's a very, very tense business. Yes, and uh, we've seen a rather large failure in, uh, in the pulmonary world, and I won't be more specific than that recently, based on a, an incredibly small, and I mean less than 50 patient phase two study that led to phase three. And again, it's really make sure that you do it well. It's, it, it's, it's, it allows you to de-risk and, read and um, better define your phase three program. Very helpful. Um, can I ask, how does industry identify avenues for collaboration regarding therapeutic targets that were identified from academia? Yeah, so this will proceed in different ways, Sydney. Um, it may be that academics have their own ideas about a mechanism and they'll bring it to industry. Um, some houses like Pfizer have open calls for science where they'll collaborate. Very often, research groups within industry will be following who's the best in the field, following the literature. And if they're interested in the pathway, they will reach out to very good experts in that pathway for consultation on basic mechanisms and translational science. And so it's a, it's a very dynamic and interesting interaction. Sometimes academics may be introduced to biotech companies by venture capitalists who are interested to see their capital expand and having the best guidance on the projects that they're funding. So multiple, multiple tiers. Yeah, and, and actually it's a, it's a two-way street. Um, yeah, academics may, academic institutions may bring ideas, molecules to uh, pharma, but a lot of time pharma will reach out to academics to really get an idea of the program. And um, many times we'll engage uh, academic experts uh, years before clinical studies even started. And I, I can give you an example of you know, real life one was our triple program. Uh, when we began uh, Pearl Therapeutics, we, we, had, we, we knew we were gonna make a Lama Lava, but a triple was always on the horizon. And it was just, you know, just this idea that, uh, you know, we couldn't really devote a lot of time to. And so in 2010, when we got the Lama Lava program really moving at one of our ad boards, we brought up the idea of the triple and uh, there's a lot of interest on it. And that dictated uh, us going in and making the formulations, refining the plans, et cetera. And it was iterative. The next year we shared the information that we had and, and, uh, Likewise, at other meetings, and in 2013, we began our first in-human study, and um, the entire program was, uh, which 16,000 patient program, was done in really close collaboration and consultation with the advisory board as well as others to really fine-tune the program and ensure that we we were doing what was best instead of the art at, at the time. And Colin, I'm sure you agree the quality of clinical experts providing guidance on how to execute a program, what patients might want from a therapy, where the field is going, um, is golden. Uh, I've seen consultation meetings with people who don't really know the field and the entire opposite, where clinical experts have such sophistication in their knowledge of disease and how to do things that they've enabled drug programs. So there's a real role for academics to understand that they can have a 
critical role in the design and implementation of trials. Absolutely. And it's actually, it's at, you know, it's across the spectrum. It's yes on the concept and yes on the high level design, but we also consult with um, physicians and coordinators who are doing lots of clinical studies who, who we often look at with given the protocol to review and ensure it's, it, it can be implemented. We can find these patients and it makes sense and we're not overburdening the patient. So it's across the entire spectrum. So there is clearly a, it's a two-way street and a lot of collaboration to get a drug to market. In, in fact, it's, it takes a village. Yep. And um, what are the key considerations for early drug development that differ from those for late stage clinical trials? So I, I think the key word for me would be differentiation. In, in the early phase, you're looking for a project that is different from those around you. Um, your modality should produce an advantage over those things you know competitors might be working on, and it should be better than other things that are in the pipeline on the same disease. So it should produce a differentiated effect. Now, what that is and how it's achieved is difficult to say, but that is the key thing. Does the strategy really shift the needle on the disease? So um, once that is in place, then it is speed and efficiency and bringing together of many arts. So I mentioned you'd find a lead compound that needs to be refined very quickly to be optimized for its kinetics. So it's disposed well in the body. If it's going to be inhaled, talk to Colin, you need a great expert in formulation because no formulation, no products, no clinical trial program needs to meet stability. Um, safety studies need to be done. So it's suddenly a massive expansion of activities as the process goes forward. Gary, it is incredible what can and often does go wrong in a clinical study. Things that you would never expect to happen, happen. And uh, there's one example that particularly stands out for me. Uh, this occurred in a very large asthma program that we conducted several years back. It, in this program, we were evaluating the need for rescue medication as one of the key endpoints. Uh, it was still the early days of capturing the actuations from an inhaler in real time using Bluetooth connections to the patient's e-diary. And within a few hours, the data in the e-diary would be uploaded to a central database. To ensure that patients at risk of an asthma exacerbation were identified and treated appropriately, we implemented a safety review board that oversaw all of this data. And things were going along really well with the study for the first few months, probably about six months into it, a few tweaks here and there, a couple of things to iron out. And one weekend, we got an urgent call from a representative of the safety review board. Uh, they were extremely concerned about a patient that had recently been randomized to the study. Uh, they had been using very little rescue medications on the first few days, but on the, that Saturday, they used the rescue inhaler roughly 10 times and the following day had used the rescue medication at least 20, 20 times. Uh, we immediately implemented the process to contact the site and for them to follow up with the patient and treat as, uh, as was appropriate. We were sitting around and fully expecting the worst yeah, that this was a serious asthma exacerbation. We we're waiting to hear back from the site and uh, a couple of hours later, we we're extremely relieved to hear that the patient who was a teenage boy uh, simply thought that this was, quote, a cool device. And he was trying to see whether he could actuate the device without it triggering the Bluetooth sensor. 
<laughs> well, we immediately notified sites of this potential scenario, changed our instructions to include specific language to avoid this from occurring, and the study continued, and fortunately this didn't happen again. Uh, there are so many other examples I, I, I could let you know about. In fact, one day I might just write a book on it. Oh, I, I remember one large global program that was halted suddenly when the analytic lab rang up and said there's a contaminant in the batch, a micro, uh, trace contaminant. And this turned out to be because a manufacturer, third-party manufacturer had changed a tiny uh, seal in the actuator of a PMDI and the extractables from the rubber were appearing in the sol sol solvent used as the propellant. Uh, and that then the product didn't meet FDA purity standards. So that delayed a whole year to solve that problem. Really unexpected things can happen. Gary, that's an excellent point about changes that can impact the formulation. And of course, in respiratory, we do drug device combinations. So not only errors that can happen in the drug, but also simple errors that can happen with the device that can impact function. And these can be small errors, even as simple as converting inches to centimeters that could affect the function of a meter dose inhaler. A uh, standout moment for me was when we were scaling up the production of a meter dose inhaler. The early work had taken place in the US and the site for the larger batches was based in the EU. Now of the hundreds of things that could have gone wrong, someone made a minuscule error in converting inches to centimeters for the crimp size. Recall the crimp is a small little ring at the top of the can. And this made the crimp fractionally tighter than the specification. Unfortunately, because it was such a small error, it passed release testing and most of the MDIs were fine. But in some cases, particularly in the latter half of use, patients would complain that the valve was sticking. In other words, they would actuate the device and the valve would not return back to its resting position and they could not take a second dose. Uh, Patients fortunately returned the MDIs to the sites and got a new device and the defective devices were sent back to us for evaluation. And because it was such a slight difference, it took at least one to two weeks to uncover the root cause of the problem and to correct it. Yeah, and so I'd suggest to academics that they acquaint themselves with the FDA's stringent standards. They're excellent for good reasons and they cover all aspects from the science of the clinical trial design, but also the quality aspects of the formulation and stability. All of these things need to come together to make a product. If anyone fails, there's no product and doesn't, your idea doesn't reach the patient. Um, speaking of failure, I've heard it said that if you were going to fail, fail early in regards to drug development. Uh, can you share your thoughts on this with us? So, um, it's, it, it's, it's so interesting that you asked this question. I was actually on the phone to someone today about this topic, and I'll, I'll, I'll expand a little bit in, in, in a few seconds. But um, I think it depends on what the target is. If you're looking simply for target engagement, uh, you know, you're going to reduce a specific cytokine, well, then you should measure that cytokine and, and that cytokine needs to be reduced or you're going to reduce eosinophils. You, you, you need to show that you have target engagement. And um, you may want to do it in, as, in asthmatic patients, for example, where you can start to get a little bit more uh, of the information because they would have those elevated cytokines. But in 
a uh, if you're looking, for example, for FEV1 improvement in mild asthmatics uh, in a mad study, there is a good chance you're going to kill the program. And I'll, uh, what will happen is you will see your target engagement. You're extremely unlikely to show a statistical benefit in lung function or any benefit whatsoever. And then because you just put this in because it kind of made sense to do it, uh, you're going to end up with um, having a very hard time explaining that to investors and others. And they'll say, but it doesn't work on FEV1. And um, as I said, this happens more often than I think people realize. And uh, interestingly, that happened to me today. Someone was yes. recommending that we do, that they do an FEV1 in a phase one MAD study. And it was like, uh, please don't do that. If you really, if you want an early signal, you can do a part B where you have a reasonable sample of uh, asthmatics who um, are, are likely to respond and at the highest dose and, and this way, the highest safe dose and, and this way you could potentially get a signal, but that doesn't expedite anything. Rather, get done with your mat and get on with a, a well-designed phase two study. Yeah. Okay. And this brings up again the important role of academics. I, I remember when Stephen Holgate, uh, now Professor Sir Stephen Holgate, he was knighted uh, recently, advised us on early Zolaire. So anti-IgE developments and exactly that endpoint, the FEV endpoint was improved in FEV1. It was taken to mild patients with no room to improve. They clearly got better uh, in the open label and in the data. And Stephen gave management confidence to pursue the project, which could have been an early kill. It was very expensive, very experimental reshaped antibody or chimeric antibody. So a very, very expensive project. And he gave them the confidence to go forward because of his profound insight into the nature of disease and uh, can-do attitude. And that actually was instrumental in taking the drug to where it is now, clinically indicated severe asthma. Absolutely. In what ways have you seen the approach to drug development change over time? You know, it's become really intensely competitive because development times have got longer and longer. Um, it takes 25 years from the first time a new mechanism identified to the first new drug to the market. So sometimes we discover something and we think there'll be a drug in five years. No way. It's the median for the last hundred in a new, new entities that the FDA registered is 25 years from first science to, to drug. So it's all about speed and execution and competition. And it's actually really intense because these days with such open information, there's very little truly proprietary information to people. They may have a short time lead to get their compounds underway. They may work on a new technology that gives them a lead. But as soon as something looks hot, everyone jumps in and wants a slice of the pie. And so there's this race to get the best possible drug to patients as early as possible, making a lot of guesses along the way because you don't have all the information you need. And uh, things fall by the wayside for all sorts of reasons. It can be perceived by the business analyst in your company that you're no longer competitive because their intelligence is others are two years ahead of you. Um, these things can have really profound effects on projects. Yeah. Um, again, getting to the more practical side, uh, when I first began in industry, which was in the mid-90s, it was all paper. Everything was manual entry. In fact, um, we only locked a database uh, three months after last patient last visit. And, and, and that, by the way, was breakneck speed. Um, centralized spirometry was just on the horizon and had just broken through to give an idea of how, what things were like back then. 
Uh, now it's all electronic, it's all real-time, e-diaries, your outlier analyses for both safety and for efficacy, and it's much more streamlined. And in fact, now with you know the right team, the right process, the right designs and discipline, you should lock a data, any database within days, uh, even for massive databases, should take you less than uh, two weeks. I'd say so at the front end of the machines, so machines doing screening 24 hours a day, screening millions of compounds against targets looking for leads and computer-assisted drug design now is becoming a thing. So iterative cycles of machine learning to improve pharmacophores is becoming part of science and predicting better how things may be disposed in the body is, is improving with machine learning. And actually talking of that, Gary, um, we use a lot of outlier analyses now. Um, so for example, if a, you get a an effect that's physiologically implausible. For example, a COPD patient, FEV1 suddenly improves by a liter between months three and months four. It's highly unlikely that that's from your drug and it's likely there's been a mistake somewhere. And so um, we have outlier uh, um, analyses to detect this. It's not that you can change it because once it's in the database, it's in the database. But what you can do is go to the site and show you have the right training and show there was no potential mix-up, which usually doesn't happen, but um, just ensure there's the right training, everything was done correct. And of course, if it happens a second or a third time at a specific site, you can uh, do a lot more corrective action. Uh, same is true actually for safety. It's become much better, you know, in the, again, going back to the very beginning when some, some studies had central labs, some didn't, but in those studies where there were central labs and there was a, uh, a an, and alert set for a potassium of 2.5, uh, it there would be it would be mailed or faxed or call or both. And um, the pharmaceutical company had very little involvement in it. We knew about it, but it was ready for the site to take care of it. Now with outlier analyses, any patient who has a potassium of less than three, we know about it. And more importantly, oh, so our safety team knows about it. More important is also a macro that um, will show what the baseline potassiums were, any other parameters that you want, the vitals, the EKGs, uh, just summarized, and also a time course of drugs. So um, if, if, the, if those, um, when these alerts happen, we have the macro, we can quick, quickly identify what's going on, was it a change in drugs or something else taking place, or is this uh, much more severe, and we uh, notify the site as well. So there's further backup. We do that for all potassiums, labs, uh, EKGs. Yeah. Uh, you can't look for everything, but you look for a few select outliers, perhaps a dozen or so, and those are the ones you monitor. And Colin, it can be the opposite too, can't it? I remember when Iressa and EGF receptor tyrosine kinase was being developed, it actually worsened survival on an all-comers basis in patients with EGF-positive cancer. And then it was realized that there were two forms. And so the uh, sporadic non-smoking form often in women, Asian women, is the one that responds best to the drug and the others deteriorate on treatment. So a careful attention to responses within a cohort can reveal a subset of patients who may be particularly responsive or particularly at risk. I'd say genomic stratification, it's coming slowly to us. We have it with cystic fibrosis now, an allocation of the captors. Um, probably get it soon with some of the uh, other diseases like IPF and pulmonary arterial hypertension. There'll be more spoke therapies coming. Less so with asthma and COPD, but we hope to break those down into smaller endotypes in due course. Because when you have a molecular pathway in a small subgroup, it's well-defined, drug development works great. 
if you can do upfront genetic stratification or predictive stratification to enter a trial, your chance of getting over that phase two hurdle is much, much higher than an all comes basis and much cheaper. Um, what, what do you think are the main challenges right now in regard to drug development, both on the early side as well as with late stage <clears throat> clinical trials? Um, so I can start off with my, my two pets, asthma and COPD. Our main problem is that we group many things together under one term. So we talk about the asthmas and we're finding distinct asthma endotypes now, the IL-4 receptor alpha endotype, the IL-5 endotype that responds to specific therapies. We've been much less successful in doing that in COPD. Um, so that's going to happen. But I think what is also happening now with attention to lifelong trajectories of disease, that we're moving much earlier in our concepts, thinking not for late stage palliations of the symptoms of lung disease, but true disease modifiers and remission inducers. We don't know what they are yet, but we can imagine them for asthma and COPD. We should actually demand them. Yeah, um, Gary, it's interesting. The when I first began in industry talking about you know, treating patients late in the game, uh, the typical patients that we enrolled into the Combivent studies were um, six, 65 years of age, 65 pack year smoking histories and FEV1 of 33%. And even in our most recent ethos study that was completed, they were less severe than that. And so we, we, we are certainly treating patients earlier and earlier with availability of drugs, which is which is fantastic for patients, of course, and, and we should uh, continue to uh, create better drugs. From a clinical development point of view, you have to evaluate your drugs on top of standard of care. Mm -hmm. And unless you can identify the specific patients who are more likely to respond, and as you alluded to, we end up with these very large studies where you're adding your treatment on top of standard of care, uh, requiring much larger studies of longer duration, and far more expensive. And you know, we, see, we saw that with the triple, we've seen that with all the biologics. Um, targeted therapy is definitely uh, going to become more and more uh, common as a, as a way of developing drugs. Yeah, and certainly there's a great reluctance to take people off standard of care and do a placebo-controlled trial if there is an appropriate treatment. Um, we see this now with IPF, where there are two registered drugs that modify the fallen FEV over time, or FEC over time. Um, and then that's standard of care. So you have to do your trial, either in patients who refuse that, can't tolerate those drugs, or as an adjunctive therapy on top of those, which is quite different to doing it in patients in relation to a placebo control. Changes all the, all the, it makes much more challenging, actually. That's true in asthma and COPD today for pretty much any agent. Yeah, and Colin, you'd probably agree that um, the modalities we have for looking at early disease are quite weak. And so there's going to be a need to develop more sophisticated imaging and other uh, non-invasive ways or, or, or kind ways of looking at early disease. And it won't be spirometry because in COPD, that just doesn't see the small airway destruction that's happening early on. It takes a long time for that to roll into orthodox spirometry. But maybe lung imaging with gas diffusion and other modalities and some of the work from COPD gene on um, repeat CTs with machine-assisted learning for structural change over time will be the way forward. Yeah, definitely. In fact, even at uh, ATS meeting this week, um, there was a, quite a lot of data on new imaging moda modalities uh, in asthma, in nicotine, uh, sorry, in, in those e-cigarettes, in IPF, uh, 
and other disorders. And clearly, um, I think there's a lot of uh, promise for hyperpolarized uh, xenon MRIs, also PET scans, which uh, I know Sydney, you're, you have some interesting probes uh, for IPF, which I think is going to potentially revolutionize how we do early, early clinical studies to assess the signal. So Gary, I'm with you. The one thing we need is better imaging uh, and, and uh, as an endpoint to detect uh, changes early on. Yep. And then we can make, then we can work out the mechanisms and have the disease modifiers. Uh, there'd be a big, big issue. If we imagine a drug that might induce an asthma remission in people who are relatively well, but might get asthma in the future or a COPD therapy for pre gold zero, when people are well, there's a payment issue. Who's going to pay for it? But those problems have been solved for antihypertensives and other long-term prophylactics. So, the business people work out a model. Um, we should just think about the mechanisms and how to bring those those treatments forward. The business world will find a way to monetize any innovation. I'm very confident in the United States. <laughs> it always seems to do that well. How has the COVID pandemic changed the drug development process? And what do these changes do you think may become more permanent fixtures? I think COVID's a very good example of how if you have quickly defined endpoints, you can do trials rapidly. So the, the quickly emerging seven-point scale, the ordinal scale method, and also just virus amount as a TETA and aspects of antibody quality um, and amount, all enabled vaccines or other interventions or pivots. Um, cooperation from the regulators, the FDA was very proactive in thinking through what endpoints should be and, and thinking through where to set sensible bars for efficacy. Remember that the vaccine efficacies were set about 50% and they've just delighted us all with the fantastic benefits they're bringing. Um, so the, when there's a crisis, there can be a focus. But of course, that's a global crisis. It's quite different in a mature disease like asthma where you have very safe and effective treatments um, that have well-defined side effect profiles and risk profiles to bring forward a new type of treatment into that area. That's a much more difficult thing. I think we've learned so much from COVID. Uh, it's, it has accelerated remote management and monitoring of patients and really allowed a much more rapid adoption, including uh, remote um, PFTs, which I think there's more of a reluctance to use them in clinical trials. But for me, one of the biggest lessons learned from COVID was the utility of the adaptive platform trial, where multiple interventions could be assessed in the same protocol. And Gary, to your point about getting uh, treatments in earlier, um, I think this is where we could, we could definitely use a, an adaptive platform trial. For example, if we want to assess um, a therapeutic regimen in early COPD. Once we've identified those patients, we don't know whether we should treat them with a bronchodilator, a, an inhaled steroid bronchodilator, a triple, um, or just or nothing. And uh, with an adaptive platform, we, we could evaluate all, all of those treatments and also have interim assessments, which would stop one or, yep. and uh, allow the others to continue or newer treatments to come, uh, come into the trial and be evaluated. Yeah, so I think we'll see much more of the use of adaptive trials um, linked in with exploratory molecular biomarkers and iterative cycles to further refine um, patient selection. And that, that'll be the emerging art in the next decades. And um, telehealth, just the way we interact, uh, being able to do this so easily, <laughs> but now as part of routine life, 
uh, has brought us closer together. I think it's been easier for experts to get together, oddly, for discussions because you don't have to be in airports flying around. Um, let's hope that stays. And uh, let's hope our society remains strong as conduits for information flow. Um, there will be good lessons from COVID. What advice would you have to people in academia that may be interested in transitioning to a career in drug development with a pharmaceutical company? Um, so my, my advice would be whether you're thinking of entering a very large house, sort of a Pfizer or Novartis or a small biotech, um, to first be very secure in your academic work and have a reputation. Um, your utility to your company will be around your academic reputation expertise. Um, and I think I'd also advise people to take a careful look at how others who've done it have worked out, how it's worked out for them to get a feel of what it's like, because industry is very heterogeneous. And even within the one company, you will have very different subcultures at work. So it's quite different working, for, I imagine, for a company like Regeneron or Genentech, which are heavily science focused, versus a much smaller development house trying to get a known compound through a phase two, three program. Very different experiences of day-to-day -day work. Yeah, um, I, I, my advice would be you have to look at it as a fellowship. It's going to take you at least three years to have a reasonable understanding of the process and probably five years to really get to be good at design. Um, also, for many in academics, switching to industry could be a lateral move or lower and certainly you want to consider that in your decision making. Uh, again, from my perspective, I you know, I am so thankful I made that transition. I love what I do. And if anybody's interested in industry, please reach out to me. I'm, I, I will schedule a call with you and uh, talk you through some of the pros and cons. Happy to do that. Yeah, industry can be absolutely wonderful. Having spent time, long time, you know, I worked for 10 years with Sando and Sibagaghi, which used to form Novartis. And I've actually recently spent a whole year with AstraZeneca, um, working with their scientists on revising the early portfolio and, and overall strategy. And apps, that's where I met Colin. It's absolutely yeah. exhilarating. So having the resources and that enormous machine to bring things forward. Um, I'd say the main difference is I'd say at university, not many people care about you unless you're bringing in grants and papers. That's all they care about. But in industry, everyone cares about everything you do because it's so integrated. And so it's, it's quite a different way of interacting with people. And um, uh, but, but very, very satisfying when you see things move forward towards patients and actual clinical use. That's tremendously satisfying. And similarly, for um, those of us who are in academia that are interested in getting more involved with clinical trials in a particular area, um, what advice would you have for us? My advice would be to look for people who are in expert centers or academics who really know the field and uh, take Colin's advice and do a fellowship with them. Go and learn from the best experts. Uh, if you spend some time with people in Hamilton, so Paul O'Byrne and Nair, you know, they know how to do asthma trials. Sally Wenzel knows how to do an asthma trial. John Fahey has profound insights into molecular mechanisms and how to do asthma research. Um, go to the very, very best academic centers who are working with industry and learn from there. Um, before you step in, because it is very, very complex and uh, it's best to learn from masters. Definitely. Another alternate is um, you find out what uh, clinical studies are ongoing at your local hospital. 
uh, sign up to be a, a PI or a sub PI and really get immersed, read the protocols, really go to the investigator meetings and you'll see the complexity and then decide if this is for you, um, you know, and, and then take it from there. Just one bit of advice, if you're applying for funding from pharma uh, for an investigator-sponsored study, either the funding or part of the, uh, getting access to the experimental drug, uh, make sure it's a way that you can add value. You know, don't submit a request if it's something that's already ongoing, has already been done, it's just not gonna happen. So uh, to Gary's point, really come up with something exciting that's a hook and is different from what's being evaluated and has uh, scientific plausibility. Um, and then again, as Gary said, you know, do something cutting edge, uh, like certainly what you've done with PET scans. I mean, that's, that, that's really cutting edge and uh, something which you know, everybody's interested in. Yeah, you can do the New England Journal of Medicine test and ask how, how often has that group produced first new papers on new mechanisms in a, in a prominent journal such as the New England Journal? Because the best groups do, they, they, they produce the first word on new innovations because they're very skillful um, and they're the ones to look to. Great. Um, what is the most satisfying part of your job? And, and looking back, what, what are you most proud of in terms of things you've worked on for clinical trials or drug development? Oh, so I've, I've got um, four drugs I've worked on that come to market. And the one I am obsessed with is Formoterol because I've spent so long with it. And I'm just delighted to see that a long-acting beta agonist steroid combination now recommended as therapy for all genograids. And I've met people now who've been treated with Formoterol who said, well, that really works. <laughs> so that's very satisfying. Um, I suppose intellectually, the things I'm most interested in and, and most satisfied would be the endotype theory, which I originated. That's really taken off and I think it's helpful for drug development. Um, that would be very good. And then the other thing would be just seeing new ideas move forward. So we have some other projects now that are moving towards, or in the clinic, phase two and phase three. And fingers crossed that they may be beneficial. So there's just nothing more satisfying than that very, very rare day when you get the notification that a drug is succeeded in the phase three program and then goes to FDA or the authorities and eventually gets registered. That, that's very rare and very, very satisfying. For, for me, it's the uh, most satisfying part. It, uh, it's easy. I'm, I'm motivated by impacting patients' lives and you know, come to work every day to help make a difference. In fact, the ATS's mission statement, you know, we help the world breathe, certainly resonates and is a reminder to me every day when I turn on my computer. Um, let me like to give an example of probably something I'm most proud of, um, and it, it ha goes back to working in my fellowship at National Jewish back in the 90s. Uh, one night, a mother called about her 15-year-old asthmatic son who was reasonably well controlled and then had a rapid onset of worsening over the last three to five days. Um, by the time she called, he was taking albuterol every five to 10 minutes. Uh, he had refused to go to the ER and had just passed out at home. And she was completely frantic. And oh, I said to her, look, call 911 and I'll see you in the ER. And um, unfortunately, he died en route to hospital. Uh, you know, this still makes me cold. He would have been in his late 30s today. He would have been someone's son, someone's brother, someone's father, someone's husband, someone's friend. And um, 
it, it just struck me then that um, we should make a cyber and an ICS because patients were mm. ha have not been um, compliant with inhaled steroids for decades, and that was certainly the case then. And so it made sense. Why don't we combine a SABA with an ICS? And this way, the patient will auto-titrate their anti-inflammatory based on the medications. And so I sat down with my uh, mentor, Hal Nelson, and asked him, you know, why don't we do this? And he said, well, it's very complex. It's difficult. There are formulation issues. He'd been on many advisory boards for um, different companies. And also, there was a promise that the um, the twice daily ICS labas would provide steroid coverage and this would be a thing of the past. Um, unfortunately, we, we know that this still occurs today and um, it's um, it, it's still an issue. And for me, the one of the most gratifying parts of my job has been working on the Sigma program, uh, watching that come to market, I'm sorry, come, come to fruition, get published in the NEJM and get taken up in the GINA guidelines. And then also having the opportunity to design the PTO27 from concept right through to the start of phase three. And uh, PTO27 is an ICS-SABA combination. And uh, the, this could be added to any background medications as opposed to albuterol. So those results are um, quite imminent and I'm really looking forward to see, uh, seeing the day when we don't hear about patients dying from um, albuterol use without having steroids. Yeah. So, so again, it's for me, it's, it's, it's taking two existing drugs, repurposing them to actually fit a patient's lifestyle and keeping it simple is probably the most impactful program I've worked on in my career and is what makes me the most proud. Um, it, it's so interesting, Colin. Um, we're talking about fail early. And if we think about combination drugs, you know, the first beta agonist was synthesized by Sir David Jack in 69 and introduced into clinical practice in 74. Uh, Salbutamol, Salmitrol was made in the same time frame, actually. And we're still learning how to use them and we're still learning how to use steroids optimally. So um, there's quite a bit of art in finding the way forward for drugs in terms of the way they're used and often the clinical trials you take a guess won't you on what would be a treatment regime it may not be the optimal regime oh absolutely even in the uh, this is on contrast.gov even in the pto 27 program um you know which dose of steroid do you take do you take a full strength or do you take a half strength we don't know and, and under that circumstance we ended up carrying two doses forward yeah i'm telling yeah, you a question on most satisfying i'd say the other thing that you cannot take for granted. Um, you know, I grew up in Melbourne on the other side of the world. It's a lovely science city, but this field has brought me in contact with the best people. I mean, really, I'm not a clinician, but really wonderful clinicians like Bruce Levy, who's been a great friend, and uh, members of Thoracic Society, the European Respiratory Society, um, experts in caring for patients and thinking about the future. And that's actually not to be ignored. That is deeply satisfying when you can work with colleagues of such high caliber such wonderful people. <laughs> you feel very, very happy in life. You've made the right choices. Yeah, I agree. It's a, yeah, for, for me, the meetings are more like reunions. They're, they're, you, it's great science, but you also get to, to have reunions with your colleagues and, and friends that you've worked with over many, many years. And as you say, just a wonderful community. Gary and Colin, 
um, I cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your schedules. Um, it's really been an honor and a pleasure to, to get to learn from um, two amazing experts in this field um, who have made such wonderful contributions to our um, American Thoracic Society, but um, also and incredibly importantly, our patients. So thank you for your time today. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Breathe Easy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Thank you again for listening and have a great day, everyone.